0: just a whole bunch of different stuff. It is the 100th episode of this dumb podcast. I can't, qu- I, can't I can't quite believe it. I never like I never planned to do 100 episodes. But then I never planned not to do 100 episodes, so it kind of snuck up on me a little bit. Anyway, uh, as I mentioned last week, I've decided to do a uh, a, a sort of a compilation episode. So what's going what's gonna to happen today? I get a bunch of uh, – I obviously get a bunch of suggestions sent in every week, and some of them, unfortunately – I mean, they're great suggestions, but they're just not long enough. The stories or, or whatever are just not long enough, right, to make a full episode out of them. So what I've done this week – and, you know, this is a special thing for the 100th episode here – I've put together seven of the best ones that constantly get sent in, and we're going to have a special episode with seven different stories, seven short stories today, uh, you know, from all sorts of different points in history, all different places around the world as well, um, of some of the shorter uh, little adventures that that get sent in that I wasn't able to, you know, stretch out into a full episode. So let's get to it. Uh, we've got a lot to get. have got a lot to get across today. Um, I'd like to thank all the people who've been sending in submissions. All the people who sent in these ones, of course, so I'll, I'll let you know who sent in each submission as we get to it. But to all the people who sent, I read every single one. I read every single one. Some of them, they just there's just not enough meat on the bones. Some of them is too much meat on the bones. <laughs> Someone sometimes you get one is like, wow, I just can't you know, can't cover that. Can't, there's just way too much to get across there. Uh, but uh, today we're going to cover a lot of these shorter ones here, a lot of the ones that won't take us too long to get through and bang them all out, seven in a row. No, don't even worry about it. Um, but before we begin, begin, I just want to say thank you. Thank you. Whether this is the first episode you've listened to or the hundredth, whether you've been there from day number one, uh, whether you're a Patreon supporter, a casual listener, someone who waits there for you know on on the, on the Monday morning, the Sunday evening to uh, to get this episode and as soon as it drops, just thank you, thank you for being part of this uh, this adventure, thank you being for being part of this journey, and um, I mean yeah, here's to 100 more. Let's uh, let's uh, <laughs> let's keep it going. Anyway, let's get to it. We're gonna get underway here and and kick off our seven short stories. So here we go. We'll kick things off here with one I've been uh, I've been sitting on this one for a very long time. It, it, it It's sort of one that smacks as being a little bit spurious or maybe just slightly made up. Uh, you know, one of those factoids that you see in a, in a Did You Know book. But it is true. I did I did my research. I looked into it. And I want to talk to you about the time that in 1866, one of the very last times, right, that the Liechtensteiner army was sent off to war. And when they went off in 1866 to uh, uh, to fight in the Austro-Prussian war, they suffered casualties to the tune of... A minus one. (laughs) Now you you might go, whoa, 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 hang on, wait, wait, wait. How the bloody hell does that make sense? How does that how does that work in any way? Well, I'll tell you. Listen to this one. The might of the Liechtensteiner army was deployed. Right, one of the for the very one of the very last times, as I say, in 1866, when a powerful contingent of no fewer than 80 soldiers, (laughs) 80 soldiers, was sent off right to fight as part of this Austro Austro Prussian War, but when they returned this contingent of soldiers, they came back with 81, not with 80, that made a friend along the way. Now, this story, as I say, it's reasonably famous. It's one of those, again, pithy factoids that get put, you know, rubbish fact books or whatever else, and and unusually is offered with no other context or, or further information. But for the most part, this is true. And it definitely did happen. Although, you know not necessarily in the overly simplistic way that it's usually told. Because the fact it would usually read something like, in 1866, Liechtenstein sent 80 men off to war, but they made a friend while away and they came back with 81. And, you know, that's often what you'll read in these uh, in these rubbish fact books, that Did You Know It books. But again, broadly true. But there's a little bit more nuance. Uh, and it is unfortunately... A bit less exciting when uh, when you delve well when you delve into it. Uh, so Liechtenstein is a super super weird country. It is nestled between Switzerland and Austria, and it's absolutely tiny. I rode across it on a bike right from from uh, across its widest point uh, in three hours with a break for lunch. Uh, it has. Uh, what less than 40,000 people living there not a huge amount to see and do it's got a museum it's got a palace like a castle halfway up a mountain and apparently the skiing's very nice there's little rustic villages at the top of mountains that's sort of. Thing. I mean it's a nice place to visit very unique and very cool place to visit but uh, not a lot going on and bloody expensive as well it is a very very expensive place to uh, to visit as well but uh, it's been around for a while nearly 300 years or over 300 years I should say established in 1719 and it's ruled by a prince And in 1866, it was one of these princes, it was Prince Johann II, who sent off 80 of his soldiers to aid in the Austro-Prussian War. Uh, Liechtenstein at this point was part of the German Confederacy, and so they were fighting the the Austrian Empire there. And so these 80 soldiers, they marched, well, I say marched. They strolled, perhaps, because you know it wasn't a long walk after all. Strolled off to guard the southern border, you know. So this isn't a, a cruel march of, of, of several days across you know treacherous terrain. They're just wandering through a mountain village until they got to the part, <laughs> they got to the bit where their country stops being a country, um, and they're guarding the southern border between Liechtenstein and Austria to protect it from potential incursions from Italian forces. Right now. There was no incursion, there was no enemy, there was no nothing, basically. There were just about 80 blokes, there were 80 of these blokes, kicking about, chilling out, smoking their pipes, drinking back beer and wine, and having a very cruisy time of it, you know, calling it guarding was, is even probably going too far. They, They were present, I'll say that, they were present there. Anyway, they're kicking about, guarding this border, doing whatever else, having a great time, and then sometime later, they are ordered back to the capital, Vaduz, uh, and a quick headcount of the soldiers who returned revealed that there was, in fact now, one more bloke with them that had set out. Now, there is no consensus on who this bloke was or where he was from or, you know, how he got there. Most sources I read uh, said that he was either Austrian or an Italian who was a city, citizen of the Austrian Empire, but all agreed that he was some kind of liaison officer. And in that case, he was very bloody good at his job, because he liaised with the Liechtensteiners so well that they brought him back with them. Uh, some accounts indicate that he was actually looking for work within Liechtenstein and so stuck around while others said that he headed back to Austria not long after arri- arriving in Vaduz But whatever the situation, whoever whoever this guy was, he definitely did pretty something pretty bloody unique by wandering over to the border of uh, you know this uh, of this tiny country uh, and 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 inst- you know instigating one of the few situations in history of an army growing rather than doing the usual you know shrinking while on deployment and uh, (laughs) leaving the Liechtenstein army with a KD ratio of 0 to minus 1. The Liechtenstein army, unfortunately, was uh, disbanded. I say unfortunately, maybe quite fortunately, actually. Maybe more countries should be doing this. It was disbanded just two years later, perhaps due to, you know, prohibitive, an overblown upkeep cost now that the army size had blown out. And ever since uh, 1868, Liechtenstein, uh, I mean, you know, after having proven that it's so good at war that it comes back with larger armies than it was sent off with, retired and uh, has, has, uh, has maintained a, poli- a policy of official neutrality ever since. Have you ever heard of the Voynich Manuscript? It's an absolutely fascinating mystery that was sent in as a topic by alert listener April King. Thanks, April. Essentially, the Voynich Manuscript is a very old and very strange book that dates back to Renaissance Italy in the early 15th century. The book, it's filled with this seemingly made-up language that is written in an unknown script. Uh, uh, The book has just a very few words in Latin and German throughout it, but for the most part is written in this, you know, almost like... Tolkien-esque language that, uh, well, I say language, script. We don't even know what the language is, as we'll come to. It's an absolute mystery to us. There's also amazingly weird illustrations all throughout the books of all sorts of things. Monsters and plants, stars building maps, people doing weird things. It's totally ridiculous. Not the... Best topic I'm now realizing for an audio-only medium. I strongly, I strongly suggest you jump online and have a have a look at the pictures of the book's pages because they're absolutely bloody wild. Some of them are amazing. There's pictures of things that look like a dragon. There's all yeah, all sorts of stuff going on there. But the best part about this book, however, the best part about the Voynich manuscript is no one knows, no one has the faintest idea what it is about. They don't know what the book is, what it means, why it exists, what its whole deal. You know, what, what it's even trying to tell us, right? The text in this book. Has been digitized and analyzed and and, and poured over by scholars and computers and everyone you know all sorts of people for centuries, and it's found to have everything you'd you'd expect in an actual real language, despite not using even remotely recognizable letters, uh, words and spelling seem to follow a system of consistent rules, just like just like real languages. So basically, it's clear that the thing wasn't made by, you know, the Renaissance equivalent of, 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 of keyboard mashing. It's not just random letters that have been scribbled out there like that. But we have no idea what the book is actually about or what it's trying to tell us. It's been rough. It's been so. It can roughly be divided into sections or chapters using the illustrations mainly as clues as to you know what's going on with uh, with each uh, section of the book. There's a chapter on plants, um, herbs and botany, that sort of thing. You know, with lots of illustrations of uh, of different plants and stuff. There's another chapter on astronomy with pictures of stars and constellations. One section of the vo- of the book is devoted to recipes, a little bit of a cookbook at the end there, uh, and another into what looks like a pharmaceutical guide with depictions of various ingredients, some are obviously real, some are very, very clearly made up. Uh, There's also a chapter, there is also a chapter, my friends, filled with pictures of ladies in the rooty nudie having baths, so uh, (laughs) make of that what you will. Uh, but And as I said before, there are also a few illustrations of things like castles and dragons and, and stuff like that, although that doesn't seem to be the bulk of the book. it's, it's For the most part, it seems to be primarily concerned with plant-based or herbal medicine, uh, but then it's got big parts devoted to, you know, alchemy and astronomy and don't forget the Rudy Nudy Rudy, Rudy ladies in baths as well are, are also a big part of it. Um, and it's mystifying. It's mystifying because some of the plants are very obviously real, like actual species that we see on Earth, while others are just uh, uh, fantastical and, and made up. They seem to be, you know, a product of the author's imagination, and we've got no idea who wrote it as well. Some people think it was Roger Bacon, the explorer, but it's never been conclusively proven who actually wrote it. Over the years, it's belonged to a great many people. It's been bought and sold and handed down, and hundreds and upon hundreds of people have tried to crack the case and solve the mystery of the Voynich manuscript. As I said. Linguists, lexicographers, you know, they're all reasonably certain uh, that this language in the book isn't just absolute gobbledygook, you know, it wasn't just completely pulled out of thin air, it has too much of a deliberate structure to it, if that makes sense, you know, letters appear in certain orders, there are some letters that only appear at the back of, uh, of words, some that only appear in the front, some that only appear in the middle, some that often appear together like the English TH or SH, some that are never next to each other, you know. Um, and then some that can be doubled, some that can be tripled, some that are never doubled or tripled. Um, Codebreakers have have tried for years to, you know, figure out what's going on with it. Maybe it's a cipher or some kind of shorthand or something like that. And every couple of years, someone, you know, makes headlines by claiming to have cracked the code and, and you know, have managed to work out what it's all about. But, you know, all of these claims never amount to anything. Their conclusions are very quickly debunked. And at the end of the day, it really is one Of history's mysteries. It is a history mystery, my friends, and we may never know what the Voynich manuscript really is all about. But I like to believe, I like to believe, and I know this was meant as a joke, right? But I like to believe the suggestion that was made by XKCD's Randall Munro, right? XKCD is a webcomic. You should definitely go and read it if you haven't. It is really, really fantastic. You've probably heard of it. And in one of them, Munro writes about the Voynich manuscript. And and this is what he says he says, just imagine. Someone found a book from our time, full of lists and illustrations and tables and long, dry descriptions of non-existent worlds, all written in an invented language. What have they found? And I I like to believe, I like to believe that perhaps, after all, the Voynich Manuscript was indeed the world's very first pen and paper role-playing game rulebook. The story of Peter I of Portugal and Ines de Castro, I tell you what, it's got something for everyone. It's got romance, blood and guts. There's a father-son rivalry, political intrigue, and of course, a bit of horrible murder in there as well. Ashley Bayless suggested I have a look at these two. And uh, it is, uh, I tell you what, it's a bloody great story. Strap yourselves in here. We're going We're going all the way back to 1320, 1320, when King Afonso IV welcomed his new son, Peter, into the world. Now, Peter became the heir to the Portuguese throne, King Alfonso, obviously the king of Portugal there. Um, And as you might expect, his father made arrangements uh, for a politically expedient marriage with uh, someone from a neighbouring kingdom to shore up uh, alliances and political bonds uh, with the kingdom of Castile. Now, the problem was, when Peter's new wife, a Castilian noble named Costanza Manuel, when she arrived in 1340, it turned out that old mate Peter was much more interested in one of her ladies in waiting, a woman named Inez de Castro. So, despite the uh, you know, the best efforts of uh, of King Afonso uh, to uh, you know to, to partner his his son off with this Castilian noblewoman, he ends up shacking up instead, or knocking boots with at least. Uh, with Inez, right? He begins an affair with Inez and the two of them are going off and, you know, bloody rooting sneakily behind Costanza's back. Although I think people knew what, was, what he was up to, to be honest. I mean, you know what young lovers are like. They can't get themselves to themselves. And unfortunately for Costanza, she died in 1345, five years after marrying Peter. And once she was dead, once this, you know, sort of unhappy marriage had come to its end, Afonso he wasn't mucking around. He wasn't mucking about with his Inez bird. There was no reason for her to stick around anymore. No, she was the lady, lady in waiting of, of you know, of his um, of his son's uh, dead wife. And so uh, he chucked her out in her ass. Afonso just chucked her out in her, uh, on her ass and, and banished her for the court, said, tell your story, walking in as mate, you're not welcome here anymore. Bloody scandal it was. I'll tell you this, the future king of Port- Portugal cutting about with his Inez, no bloody good, messing up, you know, a delicate political situation that a It's just way too complicated and too boring for a five minute bit on a Tin Pot History podcast, to be honest. But um, Peter, as you can imagine, wasn't a big fan of this. Won't be a surprise to learn He wasn't a big fan of his father chucking out his uh, his mistress like this, and he refused all of his father's orders to remarry. Instead, right, Peter snuck off and visited Inez in secret, and the the two of them ended up living with, with one another while trying to keep it secret from Afonso. But Peter, slowly but surely, he started inviting Inez's family over from the Kingdom of Castile and gave her brothers lofty positions within the Portuguese court. Now, of course, Alfonso finds out about this. He figures out what's going on, and he realises that his son is still, you know, shacked up with this in his inner burden. He says, well, that, I mean, that's, that's enough of this. I, I, am, I am bloody spewing, mate. I am spitting chips. I am furious here. He was worried, right, that when he died... Uh, there would be a civil war in Portugal because of his son's behaviour with this uh, this Castilian, you know, with the, or worse still, that the, the, the country would fall under Castilian influence uh, even further because of, you know, that he hasn't been managing this delicate political situation between Portugal and Castile. So, in 1355, after hearing that Peter had apparently married Inez without his permission, he responded with what you could, um, I guess you could reasonably call it a slight overreaction, because what he did was he sent three men after Inez, and once they found her, they apparently, and steal yourselves here, chopped off her bloody head in front of one of her kids. I mean, there is the cliche about the dad, you know, cleaning the shotgun on the front porch, but what is that about, mate? What is that about, Alfonso, mate? You couldn't have just, you know, bundled her up in a burlap sack and carted her over the, you know, over the Castilian border and plonked her down the other side? No, chopped off her head in front of her kid. Unbelievable. Anyway, uh, Peter, it may surprise you to learn, was not the biggest fan of his dad doing this, and so actually raised his banner in revolt. He started to revolt against his own father, right? you know, rising up in arms against his old man here. Now, you know, the revolt didn't last long. He wasn't, you know, he was about as good at, at, you know, political revolts as he was staying true to his wife, because Afonso put, put the revolt down very, very swiftly indeed. But here's the thing, here's the thing. It wasn't long after this revolt was put down that Afonso went and died. Shortly after the revolt had been quashed in 1357, Alfonso shuffles off this mortal coil. And of course, Peter, revolt or no, takes the throne. He's now the King of Portugal. And he swiftly, he very quickly earned himself a new nickname, King Peter the Just, or on his bad days, King Peter the Cruel. He was called Peter the Just or Peter the Cruel because he really, really liked justice and he liked to dispense it personally and also quite quite cruelly. Um, he found the three men who, uh, you know, had... Tragically prevented Inez from riding on any more roller coasters, and uh, and staged a public trial for them, and of course found them guilty. Uh, one managed to escape punishment, but when it came to the other two, and you're going to understand in just a second why he was called Peter the Cruel, uh, when I tell you the uh, that they uh, felt the king's justice. The story goes, and I mean, look, make of this what you will, because it doesn't sound remotely believable. Like, you know, it does sound, yeah. Anyway, just have a listen to this, and again, Peter the Cruel, keep that one in mind. The story goes that peter himself executed the two killers and he did this by ripping their hearts out of their chests with his bare hands i mean peter how would you even do how would you even go about doing that did you prepare for this occasion by growing out your fingernails and sharpening them how did you get past their ribs to get to their hearts I mean, this poses more question than the questions than it answers, I think. Mean, I, 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 yeah, I, I've no, I don't, I don't. I mean, and this wasn't the end of it. This wasn't the end of the ridiculous stories about Peter I as well. Check this out. Apparently, he also exhumed Inez, dressed her up in all her noble garments and jewellery and everything, and had courtiers kiss her hand, you know, like she was still bloody alive. I mean, this sounds just as plausible as the hearts ripped out bit, to be honest, so make of it what you will, but bloody hell. These star-crossed lovers, <laughs> they wrote their names large in the history books with their antics. And even if, you know, Peter didn't express his undying romance uh, to his sweet, sweet lady by, you know, digging her up and dressing up her corpse, um, he did construct a, uh, a special tomb for both her and later on for him. Uh, this big tomb where he himself was buried after his death in, in, in 1367. And in this tomb... The words, until the end of the world, are carved into the marble, and the corpses of these two uh, are turned to face each other, so when their old mate Jeezy Crazy finally turns up on, uh, on Judgment Day, the first thing that they'll see as they rise up to eternal paradise into the, in the kingdom of heaven is each other, but, you know... Then again, they were both serial adulterers and one of them ripped two blokes' hearts from their chest, so, you know, <laughs> maybe heaven isn't where they're going to end up after all. <laughs> Germans aren't generally known for their sense of humour. As, you know, someone who lived in Germany for quite a number of years, I, I can tell you that comedy... Really is no laughing matter in Germany. Uh, but there was one German fellow who I want to talk to you about now who took the piss like you wouldn't believe and made a mockery of the very, very serious German government. In 1906, a conman named Wilhelm Feucht masqueraded as a military officer in order to rob the government blind and became a folk hero known as Der Hauptmann von Köpenich, the, uh, the captain of Köpenick. ...for his exploits. Uh, Alert listener Julian Knab sent in this topic suggestion, and the story is short, but very, very sweet indeed, so let's get to it here. Wilhelm Feicht was born in 1849, and I'll tell you what, he was a troublemaker even as a youngster. At 14, he spent a fortnight in prison for theft before being booted out of school, and before the turn of the century, he spent years and years and years going in and out of prison for thievery, burglary and forgery. He He was a career criminal, essentially. But it was in 1906, however, that he pulled off his magnum opus, attempting a bold and brazen heist of the government itself. Voigt had uh, bought various bits and pieces of second-hand military uniforms until he had assembled an entire captain's outfit. You know, he bought a hat here, a coat there, a sabre there, you know, the the boots here, the belt, all that sort of stuff. And so he dressed himself up all uh, all spick and span and tested the effectiveness effectiveness of this costume by wearing it and addressing soldiers that he saw out and about on the street and you'd be amazed at what it did to them german soldiers had discipline drilled into them from the outset prussian military traditions demanded immediate and unthinking obedience and soldiers were of course trained as such so almut Voigt, he is he is he is cutting about ordering soldiers you know here and there and they're all falling for it So, after testing this out, on the 16th of October 1906, he gets underway with this heist that he had planned. He heads off to a nearby military barracks in Berlin, where he intercepts a group of soldiers on their way back to the base with their sergeant. Now, he dismisses the sergeant, he's wearing a captain's uniform, so he outranks the sergeant, he he sends off the sergeant, sends uh, sends him packing back to the base, and orders the soldiers to come with him instead. And sure enough, they don't question the orders of this, you know, captain, in birded commas, and they go along with him. Voigt then went to a nearby shooting range where he ordered six more soldiers to come with him and again, they followed unquestioningly. Brilliant, so he's got a little contingent of men here. Voigt now got on the train with his new underlings, which I would have thought, you know, raise a couple of eyebrows, but there they are, military men off on the train, traveling out to Kopenick, uh, just east of Berlin, and marched up to the city hall there. He rounded up the local police and ordered them to keep a close eye on the streets and prevent anyone from attempting to contact Berlin via the phone in the post office. So he's gone and said, Look, you coppers, make sure no one contacts Berlin. I've got serious business to attend to here and I don't want to be disturbed. No one's no one's to make any calls uh, you know, for the next hour or so. And he then strode into the city hall with his soldiers, ordered them to cover the exits and to stop people from coming in or leaving. So the building is basically, you know, it's, it's, it's in lockdown here. It's under his control. He then, and you're not going to believe this, he then walked right up to the mayor, right up to the treasurer, accused them of corruption, announced their arrest, and demanded access to their treasury. And when the mayor asked to see his arrest warrant, Voigt pointed At the bayonets of his soldiers, and he said, These are my authority. So convincing and so intimidating was this imposter that this newly arrested treasurer, you know, scared to be in trouble with this captain here, handed over more than 4,000 marks, a receipt for which Voigt even signed using the name of his former jail warden. The Germans, they love their efficiency, everything is done by the book. He then commandeered a pair of carriages from outside and ordered some of the soldiers to escort the mayor and the treasurer back to the Neuwacht, the the guardhouse in central Berlin, to be questioned and ordered the other soldiers that remained behind to stand guard at the city hall to make sure, you know, nothing else happened. Basically slipped slipped away from all these soldiers, went off to the train station, hopped on a train, changed back into his civvies and disappeared with his new fortune safely jingling in his pocket. Can you believe it? However, his success was short-lived. The news of this daring heist of course spread very quickly once can you imagine the mayor and the treasurer they arrived the Neuwacher they told they tell the authorities what happens and everyone's just scratching their head going what the bloody hell is going on this I mean, no there's no arrest mate There's not no corruption what, what what are you doing who is this bloke who's just nicked you know nick 4000 marks office people thought it was very very funny indeed. well not the army and the government not the army and the government. They they were extremely embarrassed and uh, and they investigated what had happened very thoroughly. And the story was such a sensation, of course, that, you know, it, it, it spread far and wide. Everyone, everyone heard what was going on. Everyone heard, uh, you know, the, the the story of Der Hauptmann von Köpenich, um, including one of Voigt's old cellmates who, in fact, ratted him out. Voigt had, uh, had talked of his plans of, you know, pull off this heist while in prison. And so this bloke dobbed him in hoping for a reward for, you know, for grassing him up. Voigt was tracked down, duly arrested and tried for the heist. And he was found guilty, of course, and sentenced to four years in prison, which doesn't seem like a lot for what he did. Um, However, he didn't serve the full term. He He did not serve the full term because this did not go over well with the general public, who all seemed to be on his side because of, you know, just how bloody funny it was what he'd done. So check out what happened next. Kaiser Wilhelm II himself, who you'll remember from a previous episode, was slightly bonkers, actually pardoned Voigt, right? Apparently the Kaiser had been, you know, had also been quite amused by Voigt's explo- exploits there. But there was something else that may have tipped his hand here. This has never been officially confirmed, but many historians believe that the Kaiser was actually pleased. He was actually impressed by what Voigt had done. He was pleased that his soldiers, had been tricked by Voigt because it demonstrated their unquestioning obedience and loyalty that that you know he was so determined to uh, to have have drilled into them. So Wilhelm Voigt, after being released from prison, enjoyed a newfound fame after becoming a free man once again. He appeared in plays about the heist. He signed photographs as you know, der Hauptmann von Köpenick, and uh, and published uh, published a, a book about his life and traveled traveled the world promoting himself. Uh, he moved to to Luxembourg in nine in nineteen ten after a world tour that took him across the Atlantic the United, to the United States and Canada, and he spent uh, spent the rest of his life uh, in in Luxembourg in uh, in relative comfort until at least the uh, the post war financial recession. Of course, so many people in Europe impoverished in these times, and and uh, and he was no. Uh, he was, uh, he was no exception, and uh, so unfortunately, uh, just before he died in, in 1922, he, he did die in, uh, in poverty, unfortunately. But since then, many plays and films have been made about Voigt and, uh, and the adventure that he, he went on that one day in Köpenick. And if you go to Köpenick today, you can actually see the statue of him outside the city hall itself, while on display inside is the uniform that he wore while pulling off the heist. When you think of the richest person on Earth today, you probably immediately think of, you know, Gates or Bezos or or someone like that. But to find the richest person in history, you've got to go back a lot further. Because Bezos' piddling $150 you know, give or take a few billion, it doesn't come close to people like, for example, Jakob Fugger a 15th century merchant who was worth the equivalent of 400 billion with his near monopoly on the uh, on the copper market in the 15th century or John D Rockefeller who you may have heard of who was worth 350 billion thanks to his company Standard Oil but The richest person ever to have lived is, and actually bear in mind that it's difficult to properly quantify this, but as you'll see, it's difficult to argue with this bloke spot at the top of the list here. The richest person ever to have lived is a fella named Mansa Musa. Nico Stratisauer sent in Mansa Musa as a topic for me to get across. Thanks very much, Nico. Very interesting he was as well to read about here, uh, Musa. Musa I, Mansa roughly translates to emperor or conqueror, so Mansa, Musa, Emperor Musa I, um, was the leader of the Mali Empire. An Islamic empire that ruled uh, ruled over much of uh, Western Africa between the 13th and the 17th centuries. Musa took the throne around 1312 when his predecessor uh, Abu Bakari Kaita II uh, appointed Musa as his successor and then went off to explore the Atlantic Ocean, intending to find out where it ended. Uh, whether he made it to the Americas or not is a, is an issue of some historical debate. There's not a lot of evidence for it, but uh, it may have happened. Who knows? But what we definitely do know is that he definitely never returned. And so Musa took the throne, again, as I say, in around 1312. And the Mali Empire at this point in its history controlled about half of the world's gold supply, not to mention a a bunch of salt as well. Now, gold, obviously, yes, worth heaps, shiny, shiny, everyone knows that, but salt has also historically commanded an enormously high price tag as well. So between these two enormous, enormously you know, wealthy reserves of natural resources, the bottom line is Mansa Musa is as rich as anything. He's as rich as it's possible to be, a vast fortune that he only made all the more vast during his time as emperor. This is where we saw the peak of of the Mali Empire's uh, wealth, which of course, you know, belonged to the, the emperor, the Mansa. Musa went about conquering cities and towns, opening mines and building wealth the likes of which the world has never Again, seen. Um, perhaps the greatest display of his staggering opulence uh, was the pilgrimage that he undertook to Mecca in 1325. So Mansa was obviously he was a Muslim, and so he decided to pack up a few, you know, just pack up a few things, and uh, and go on a Hajj, just take a couple of friends along with him for a trip to uh, Islam's holy city, Mecca. Of course, in today's Saudi Arabia. And he brought about, uh, oh jeez, how many was it? 60,000 people with him? Just a couple of mates there. Uh, just a little trip, no worries. Uh, it was a caravan that spanned the horizon by eyewitness accounts. So many, so many people, all of them laden down with tens of thousands of kilograms of of gold as well. And, and I'll tell you what, Mansa Musa, he gave this gold away pretty bloody freely on his way to Mecca, chopping out donations to poor people and to other travellers, as well as, you know, chucking chucking around like there was no tomorrow for souvenirs and stuff in places like Cairo and Medina and other big cities that he, he went to on the way. In fact, he distributed so much wealth along his journey that he triggered a recession around the southeast of the Mediterranean. Single-handedly, this bloke basically caused... Uh, the price of gold to plummet in places like Cairo, which was, was which was a major gold market. You know the market was now so saturated, thanks to Musa, that that uh, the, 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 the it, its price just fell through the floor. And in conjunction, of course, the prices of you know goods and services skyrocketed. And economies were left in tatters. Single-handedly, this bloke wrecked the gold economy of of, of the of the Mediterranean there, and it's theorised. That this may have been uh, very deliberate. This may have actually been the point all along, and uh, all along, and you know that his Hajj was more for financial and economic reasons, you know, rather than just a, a pilgrimage made for religious ones. Here, because as the market, you know, the markets in in, in places like Cairo as, as they crashed and burned, here was this rich bloke chucking around gold like it's nothing, no worries, gaining all sorts of attention around the Mediterranean and, of course, beyond. Musa succeeded in making such a big show of Mali's wealth. That wouldn't you know it, once he got back from Mecca, all sorts of new faces are turning up at the gold markets in Mali and, you know, seeking out a slice of the pie. People from all, all around, right, throughout Africa, throughout Northern Africa, the Middle East, even into Europe as well. All of a sudden, they're rocking up in Timbuktu, right, wanting a slice of the action, uh, wanting a slice of that that Musa gold there. But... uh, Regardless of you know whether this was Musa's intention or not, you know to, to bolster the the economy of, of the Mali Empire, his empire did flourish like you wouldn't believe. Further and further after his return from Mecca, the empire went from strength to strength. He went he went about conquering and you know developing more and more of his territory. Built mosques and universities, all sorts of things. The the Djinguereber Mosque and the uh, the Sankora University in Timbuktu they still sa- stand today, almost seven hundred years later. They're still standing. Um, And he also built the biggest library that Africa had seen since the Library of Alexandria, with around a million manuscripts in it. And of course, as a result of all of this, the Mali Empire, it became a center of trade and culture and and flourished uh, as the vast, vast wealth of Mansa Musa only expanded and expanded. But how wealthy was he? Honestly, it is just Kind of impossible to say. He single handedly changed the gold markets around the Mediterranean and was, again, in control of half of the world's gold production. I look this up, and today around 190,000 tons of gold have been mined uh, for a total combined worth of 7.5 trillion US dollars. And obviously, you know, 700, 700 years ago, it obviously wouldn't have been close to that amount, but Musa. Even if you take like a tenth of that amount, right, a tenth of that amount was still in a league of his own. As for what happened to his wealth, well, unfortunately, it was squandered <laughs> soon after his death, as is so often the case. He died in 1337, and his heirs frittered away both their fortune and, unfortunately, their empire as well. A civil war and foreign invasions ravaged Mali later in the 14th century, and it never regained the greatness and splendor that it enjoyed under Mansa Musa I. But Musa himself remains in all probability the wealthiest person the world has ever seen. Just wait until Bezos starts getting into the gold markets, however, and then, you know, it it might be a different story. Everyone loves a bit of Australian history, and so I want to talk to you about the Sydney Razor Gangs that ruled the city's underworld during the 1920s and 30s, and in particular, the two remarkable women who ran the two biggest rival gangs. In 1927, the New South Wales government instituted great big bloody fines for anyone caught with a gun. And so instead, the criminal, uh, the criminal underworld in Sydney, they started all these gangs and mobs, they started to carry around straight razors, cutthroat razors, as their primary weapons instead. And so they became known as the Razor Gangs. Now, the Razor Gangs, they were into all the sorts of things you'd expect. Robberies, protection, prostitution, gambling, drugs, sly grog, all that sort of stuff. But it was two women... Kate Lee and Tilly Devine, who uh, emerged as the as the major figures from this period of uh, of Australia's underworld history, uh, they were they were well no they weren't kingpins were they they were they were queenpins they were criminal queenpins uh, in the in the underworld of Sydney, both with their own empires with uh, with various interests. Now under the law. All pubs and drinking houses had to close at 6, at 6 p.m. And so Kate Lee, she ran establishments that stayed open illegally for when people want to have a late one and get on the source. Also, you know, a, a, bit, of the, a bit of the sniff as well. She, uh, she sold cocaine in these places and, and, and kept them open well after the regulation hours. While Tilly Devine, on the other hand, uh, she'd been a prostitute for years and she exploited a loophole in the law that prohibited men from running brothels. She used the old shield maiden Aowen defence and relied on the fact that women weren't prohibited in the same way. So between the sly grog uh, for Kate Lee and uh, and the sex working racket for, De- uh, for Tilly Devine, these two made an absolute bloody fortune with their respective enterprises. But I tell you what. They also bloody hated each other. They could not stand the sight of each other. They were both rich and powerful. They were constantly trying to outdo one another by, you know, smashing up the other's establishments, sending out their gang enforcers off to brawl, or even actually just punching on in the street. Just just the two of them there. You wouldn't you really wouldn't believe it. And uh they both they both you know spent their money on furs and jewels and whatever else again each trying to outshine the other and uh, and be and and be crowned the the, the queen of the sydney underworld and um you know, as these major fig- figures in, 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 in the criminal world of, uh, of 1920s, 1930s Sydney, they both developed fearsome reputations, particularly Devine, who was a law unto herself. She and her gang, they would viciously attack anyone who crossed her or sex workers, slashing them up with razors. Uh, she also had plenty of cops on the take, of course, got to have corrupt cops to run a, a, criminal, a criminal empire. Everyone knows that. But if any of them stepped out of line, she would set them on fire. That was that was (laughs) that was the uh, that was the 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 harsh justice that was meted out by Devine there, and she made a huge pile of cash from her prostitution empire. You know, she bought houses and cars, amassed gold and jewels, and uh, you know. But as I say, she was known for her very very violent nature and was convicted of over 200 different offences throughout her long criminal career lee's reputation however uh, on the other hand was a little bit uh, a little bit less brutal you know she she's going about between the uh, the 20 or 30 uh, illegal establishments that she managed you know sell on the gear sell on the booze all the all sorts of that you know all, all that sort of stuff um she was known she was obviously known to use you know violence to maintain order within her emperor and in fact she even killed some people herself she even shot and killed people including one gangster who was uh foolish enough to break into her house one time shot him in the ghoulies apparently which is not a good way to go um and she too made plenty of court appearances you know dressed up in her fur and her jewels diamond ring on every finger no worries but of the 107 charges brought against her she was only ever convicted of 13. But when it comes down to it, though, these two women, they really did have a lot in common, even if they hated each other's guts. As powerful underworld queenpins... Um, they did everything, every, everything they possibly could to undermine the other. They both had their own turfs. They both have both had their own territories, and um, as I said, this often led to pitched battles in broad daylight between their gangs. One such fight was called the Battle of Blood Alley, and often the two of them themselves would, again, as I say, they'd batter the bejesus out of each other personally in in broad daylight. Uh, to the point where the cops, you know, whenever they tried to round them up, we, we actually we had to pull them off each other uh, uh, occasionally. You know, they'd, they'd jump at each other, attack each other from, you know, street cars and, on, on, you know, on street corners, all, all that sort of stuff. But it wasn't just violence as well. It was It wasn't just violence. Uh, these two women, they went to the papers about each other, spreading vicious you know lies, slander rumors about the other one, each while making a song and dance about their own virtues, because while they were both you know violent and uh, violent and, and, and ruthless criminal empresses, they did donate a lot of money to various tra- charities or to the poor and the unemployed. Of course, during the Great Depression, you've got you to do something about all that PR, of course. But the downfall. Their downfall, uh, the downfall of both Kate Lee and Tilly Devine, uh, it wasn't prison. it wasn't police intervention. It wasn't anything like that as it turned out. instead, the times changed. the laws were relaxed and all of a sudden their criminal enterprises were hardly even criminal anymore. New South Wales relaxed drinking laws and prostitution laws and so both Lee and Devine and their razor gangs were rendered increasingly irrelevant. and plus on top of this of course in the 40 the late 30s and the 40s, a great number of their gang members went off to fight in the Second World War. And so the era of the Razor Gang, it uh, it came to a close, uh, ultimately quite quite naturally as, as we headed into the 40s and into the 50s. But in the grand tradition of this podcast, it only got worse from there because most unfortunately, for them at least, Lee and Devine, they finally met their match in the 1950s to the greatest criminal of them all, my friends, the taxman. The taxman cometh for us all. And so, with both Lee and Devine being more or less the richest women in Sydney at this stage, they both suffered the ravages of the Australian tax office. In the mid-1950s, both Lee and Devine were handed tax bills for tens of thousands of pounds, and after a lifetime of wealthy opulence, both were then cast into poverty, they did manage to make a tenuous peace with each other after the empires crumbled, although, you know, they never became what you'd call friends. And after a life of crime, Lee died in 1964 at the age of 82, while Devine survived her for just four more years, dying in 1970 at the age of 70. I've got one more story before we wrap up the episode today, and I'll tell you what, it is an absolute cracker. It's the story of Alan Eugene McGee, sent in by Megan as a as a topic here. Thanks so much, Megan. McGee was a U.S. airman that fought in the Second World War for the Allies, and he had one of the most remarkable and one of the most unbelievable escapes from death that you'll ever hear. McGee was born in 1919, and after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, he joined up uh, to fight in the U.S. Air Force. Now, he was only a short bloke. He was about 170 centimetres tall, maybe even less than that, and so this made him perfect to work in the cramped confines of a ball turret of a B-17 bomber. Now, if you go online and have a look at a picture of a B-17 bomber and its ball turrets, you'll understand what I'm talking about here. They were spheres, a bit bigger than a medicine ball, uh, with guns attached to them. ...fixed underneath the bomber, and you had to be very small uh, to fit inside the sphere itself and operate the turret. Now, the close confines of the turret meant uh, that you had to wear a chest parachute. You couldn't wear a regular one on your back while firing the turret. You would, just wouldn't fit inside, uh, which, which is important, as, as you'll understand as we come to uh, you know, to what happens in this story. McGee, he's assigned to a B-17 named Snap Crackle Pop, named by a captain who used to work for Kellogg's before the war... And he heads over over the Atlantic to fight in the skies above Europe uh, as a crew member of, of this bomber, Snap, Snap Crackle Pop. And on the 3rd of January in 1941, McGee and the rest of the crew, they jump aboard the Snap Crackle Pop and they head off as part of a squadron on a bombing run above Saint-Nazaire in France. Uh, and it was uh, it was his seventh combat mission so you know by this stage he was he was well and truly experienced with the, with what was going on in these ones anyway he's down there in the turret you know he's he's shooting away doing whatever else trying to defend the uh, f- defend the bombers from the squadron of of nazi fighters that emerged to intercept and after some intense dogfighting right so you know the, all these all these planes are whirling and, wh- and 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 wheeling around in the sky the the, the bombs being dropped on the uh, on the towns below the snap crackle pop was hit and McGee's turret was badly damaged by flak. And he was badly injured as well. But even worse, as he crawled out of, the, uh, out of the turret to try to save himself, he realized that his chest parachute was damaged to the point of uselessness. A big hole had been ripped in it by this flak here. So McGee pulls himself out of the turret in search of another parachute or someone else to bail out with, you know, clutch onto them uh, like, like a skydiving instructor. But before he could the Nazi fighter planes, they returned to shoot down the B-17, sending it into a spin, right, after badly damaging one of its wings. So the bomber, it goes into a tailspin and McGee, of course, blacks out. He's six kilometers above the surface of the earth without a parachute in free fall. Now inside the, uh, you know, what will shortly become the wreckage of this bomber. But miraculously, he was flung clear of the plane, as the rest of his crew members, you know, did their best to bail out with their parachutes, he was flung out of the uh, of the uh, of the plane as it as it uh, you know spun towards the earth. And get this, as he's in free fall in midair, he regained partial consciousness while falling. I mean, we've all woken up from dreams about falling. Imagine waking up into a reality where you're falling. Unbelievable. But it didn't last long. His, uh, his, you know, being, being lucid there, because after just, you know, after just a, uh, just a few minutes, a few seconds, really, uh, he he once again fell unconscious while also, I guess, <laughs> falling down, straight down towards the ground at around two hundred kilometers an hour. It actually took him quite a number of minutes to reach the ground. I mean, a few minutes he spent in free fall here, but of course, you know, gravity takes no prisoners, and so McGee crashed through a skylight in the roof of the St. Nazaire railway station where he was found, amazingly, un- inconceivably, he was found alive. This man had fallen over 6,000 metres through the air, travelling twice as fast as a car on a freeway, had slammed through a window and onto the station floor and somehow... He lived to tell the tale. Now, it is an absolute mystery, an absolute mystery as to how he actually survived. The skylight may have cushioned him, it's thought, but let me make something clear. He he, he didn't just, you know, stand up, dust himself off and walk away. No, no, he wasn't in good nick, far from it. He had a broken leg, a busted ankle, a punctured lung, his nose and one of his eyes had been ripped open. Uh, He was missing several teeth and his arm had nearly been severed. But he was taken to a nearby field hospital where a German doctor treated his wounds, saved his arm, and patched him up as best he could, saying, We may be enemies, but I will do my best to save your life. He was then held as a prisoner of war until the end of the war in 1945, at which course he was repatriated. Of course, he returned to the United States after the war had finished. But there, you'll be interested to learn. He decided... He hadn't had enough of the open sky. The sky was calling to him once again, and so he obtained his pilot's license. McGee worked as a commercial pilot for over 30 years until he retired finally in 1979. And 16 years later, in 1995, two years after the town erected a statue in his honor, he visited the French town of Saint-Nazaire and revisited also the railway station, where he had made such an unorthodox entry 50 years before. And upon seeing the station after such a long time, he reportedly said, I thought it was much smaller. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the end of the 100th episode of half Assed History. And all that remains for me to say is thank you. Whether this is your first episode or your 100th, whether you've been with me from the beginning or you've just started out and stumbled upon this dumb podcast, thank you so much for for, for being so generous with your time as to listen to me, you know, go on about whatever dumb thing I've been reading about that week. It is so humbling to have so many people listening to this, this, this stupid podcast every week. Um, and I just, I, I really don't know what to say. I mean, talking is kind of the one thing that I'm good at. The only thing that I'm really any good at is just, you know, flap me gabber. And, and even now, I, I really don't know how to express the, the, de- the humbling depth of gratitude that I have to all the people who have. Uh, you know, become part of the Half Ass History family. Whether you know you just tune in for a couple of episodes here or there, whether you're waiting for the episode to drop uh, every week, whatever it is, I, I I really just can't thank you enough for to contributing to the success of this podcast and you know helping to keep me motivated to do it for for you know what is pushing two years now and 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 have done a hundred episodes. I it it just it. Thank you. That's all I can really say is 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 just thank you. That's all. That's all I have to say. No, that's not all I have to say. I've got to do all the boring housekeeping stuff, of course. History.net, my friends, is your place to go. Uh, if you want to go and listen to each one of the 100 episodes that I put out, there's links to subscribe. You can go and leave a review on iTunes. You'd be doing me a big favour if you did that. Still selling merch, of course. Free worldwide shipping. Free worldwide shipping on all the stuff in the merch store. Uh, so get across that. Uh, Half Us- oh, sorry, Big Cartel. Uh And if you want to support the show, now's a great time to do it. 100th episode, of course. Uh, uh, on Patreon, patreon.com slash half history. And uh, to all the Patreon members who have been there for for so long, thank you so much. To old and new Patreon members alike, it, it is such a, it is, it, it's so incredible that, uh, you know, you offer me this financial support and, and continue to be the spur to my flank, the carrot to my donkey's nose to make sure that I continue to put out this dumb podcast every week and in a very exciting development that many of you may be uh, maybe especially the patron members will be uh, will, you know perhaps be happy to hear i have started at long last a Discord server. If you want to uh, to join up to this Discord server uh, and chat with other fans of the show, uh, maybe send in topic suggestions that way. Connect with other other listeners or whatever else. There's a, 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 all sorts of stuff going on on the Discord. You can find it bit.ly/itsriley's Discord. It's Uh, R-L-E-Y-S-D-I-S-C-O-R-D. It's Riley's Discord. You go there, Half Us History Discord, amongst a bunch of other stuff, of course. But you can go and, again, connect with other people who listen to the show and send in your topic suggestions. And, you know, the shows are announced there and there's a couple of other little bonus things there, especially for Patreon subscribers. If you're a Patreon member, you do get access to the exclusive uh, uh, sub-only channel there, where every now and again I'll I'll, uh, I'll do a little bonus stream, or will put out some bonus content, all sorts of stuff there. So if you want to get across it, now's a great time to sign up for the Patreon. You can, uh, for, for as little as a dollar a month, you can uh, support the show. And uh, that's in addition to all the other stuff that was already going on, you know, the behind-the-scenes episode, the show scripts, um, uh, early access, uh, all that sort of stuff. But even if you're not a Patreon member, I still do owe you an enormous debt of gratitude for uh, for being part of this show. So thank you so very, very much. Here's to the next 100 episodes. I do hope that, uh, you know, in another two or so years, I'll be back here on episode 200 listening to, uh, you know, with, with just as many or more people listening to the show then. Um, so uh, thank you. Thank you for your, for your continued support. And um, that is it. That is, all, that is all she wrote today, sports fans. I don't even have a question. I don't even have a question posed, posed on us by Reddit. I, I, I just I don't have anything else to say. I really don't have anything else to say other than to offer you a deep and very, very heartfelt thank you.